This is a podcast from 720 to go. We're, we're, we're WGN Radio. The voices in your head. News Talk 720 WGN. The poets, the pundits, the prime ministers. Never get through Chicago without talking to Milt Rosenberg. You've just downloaded a podcast that contains a full-length version of Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg. It's the history of history itself. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to the weekly podcast from Extension 720. Do you know what libel tourism is? Well, you will shortly as you listen to our discussion of the assault upon the West by extremist Islam uh, and how that assault is now taken to the courts to prevent proper critical commentary on extremist Islam. My guests are all from the New Criterion magazine, led by their distinguished publisher and editor, Roger Kimball. The boys are here again tonight. Not the boys from Brazil, but the boys from New York. More particularly, the boys from the New Criterion, which, in the judgment of many, including the host of this program, is the most interesting magazine produced in this country these days. My guests are, and they've all been here before, Roger Kimball, who is, in fact, an old friend. He is editor and publisher of the New Criterion. He's also the publisher of a very uh, significant uh, firm which turns out some very interesting and important books, uh, the firm being titled Encounter Books. Also with us, James Panero, Managing Editor at the New Criterion, David Yezzi, Executive Editor at the New Criterion. And gentlemen, you recently turned out a special supplement which went to all subscribers to the New Criterion, thus I received it at home, uh, titled Free Speech in an Age of Jihad, uh, Libel Tourism, hate speech, in quotes, and political freedom. Uh, do, by all means, Roger, explain what that conference was about and why it was called in the first place. Well, it was called, really, Milt, because uh, uh, we understood that the challenges of uh, radical Islam and the, in recent years had mutated, that uh, many of the partisans of, of radical Islam were... Uh, foregoing, at least for the time being, uh, the use of um, stolen Boeing 767s uh, and uh, suicide bombers as their preferred means of furthering their goals. And they were turning instead uh, to uh, soft jihad. That is to say, they were turning to the, to the courts and other democratic institutions. So it's jihad waged not by assassins, but by lawyers. Exactly. Uh, by, by lawyers, um, uh, by, by the courts, by uh, judges that can be, uh, you know, persuaded to uh, pervert, really, the, the, the instruments of, of uh, democratic freedom in order to further the cause of, of radical uh, Islam. Let me plunge right into that by reading uh, the opening paragraph of one of the major articles here, uh, the one by Stanley Kurtz, titled Not Without a Fight. Um, just the first paragraph. It's been less than a year since the phenomenon of, quote, libel tourism first broke into public consciousness in the United States. On August 10, 2007, the Chronicle of Higher Education reported that Britain's Cambridge University Press had agreed to pulp all unsold copies of the 2006 book Alms for Jihad, Charity and Terrorism in the Islamic World. Uh, James Panero, can you explain what that case was about and what happened in those British courts? Well, this is the equivalent of a modern-day uh, book burning, in my opinion. Um, it's a book pulping, which a book is another way to get rid of a book. Right. Um, 
we had a book, and um, a lawsuit was, um, I believe, threatened, and Cambridge University Press capitulated without defending their authors. What did the book, in fact, deal with? Uh, Milt, the, the book was um, a very detailed, very scholarly examination of the way in which uh, various Islamic charities were being used, in fact, to funnel uh, funds to terrorist organizations. Uh, it's, it was a very, um, it was not a kind of, uh, you know, uh, sensationalistic book at all. It was very scholarly, very detailed, uh, you know, uh, exhaustively uh, reference and so on. And as James uh, points out, what, what was really remarkable in Cambridge's capitulation was, and they capitulated almost instantly, they weren't sued. They were threatened with a possible they suit. They got a letter from the lawyer. They got a letter from the lawyer. Uh, <coughs> and the lawyer was representing what organization? The, the, well, the lawyer is representing someone called uh, uh, Mr. Bin Mahfouz, who is a, a rich Saudi banker uh-huh. who had been uh, involved in the BCCI scandal. Um, uh, a very shadowy uh, figure, um, and who who makes a kind of hobby uh, of of either threatening or, in fact, suing uh, people whose opinions he disagrees with. For example, one of the most celebrated cases, in addition to the Almsford Jihad case, was uh, the case of Rachel Ehrenfeld, an American uh, author who published uh, a book on a, this this subject, uh, not in England, only in the United States, but. Uh, because a few, uh, 23, I, I believe, copies of it were um, uh, uh, purchased over the Internet, it was said that it was distributed in England, and a, uh, she, she was sued, and she um, did not have the, 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 the wherewithal to defend the suit, so default judgment was entered against her, and, um, you know, for 125,000 pounds. Let's note one other such action brought, in this case, uh, in a quasi-judicial uh, setting in Canada. And I referred to uh, the very important book by a friend of all four of us, uh, Mark Stein, who's often appeared on this program. And we've talked about the book banning attempted in Canada. But uh, would you, David Jesse, run over that in some small detail? Well, uh, you know, Mark Stein published um, a best selling book in this country um, America Alone. America Alone. Um, which uh, I know uh, Roger uh, very rightly uh, <laughs> points out that, you know, appeared uh, in the New York Times uh, only on its bestseller list, never in its editorial pages, and has been passed over for review uh, there. By the way, you guys won't object if I note that the first version of that book was an article titled It's the Demography Stupid, which appeared in, of all places, the New Criterion. The New Criterion. Thanks for pointing yeah, that out. Yeah, January 2006. And about Start a year later... Out. The book came out. That's right. Um, but, you know, a number, a number of the points that um, Mark makes in that book were very well taken uh, here in the United States, um, as were uh, a number of the uh, the points that uh, Rachel uh, Ehrenfeld made in, in her book. Um, but this notion of, of, of libel tourism um, is, is books that are unobjectionable under American libel law are then uh, scrutinized or actually... Um, very willfully uh, exported to uh, Britain or to Canada and and re-evaluated under um, uh, libel law in which the burden of proof uh, is um, 
no longer uh, with uh, the person uh, bringing the charge, but rather with the plaintiff. Uh, and that's the, that is the root of libel tourism, and that's what uh, has caused both Mark Stein and Rachel Ehrenfeld a uh, very undue uh, direct. The further provocation, which aroused uh, some of the Islamists of Canada and aroused their organizations, was the publication of a chapter of uh, Mark Stein's book in McLean's magazine, which is sort of the leading magazine in Canada. And then that action was brought before, what do they call that body? Was it, it is the Canadian Human Rights Commission? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're, and they're, in this case, it was the Provincial Human Rights Commission for the province of British Columbia. Uh, and a trial, a kind of a star chamber procedure, went on for quite a while. And... Uh, uh, costing Mark a great deal, I imagine, not merely in uh, patience and tension, but even in money, uh, and costing McLean's magazine a great deal. Mm -hmm. But they stood up strongly on this, mm -hmm. and apparently the uh, suit has fizzled, uh, if only because of all the public scorn that was heaped upon uh, this quasi-judicial body. But as, you, as you're saying, I think after the damage has has been done, I think that uh, what happens in, 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 in these cases is that um, people with uh, a great deal of, of resources are able to bully uh, uh, you know, uh, responsible uh, authors who uh, who don't have the means um, uh, to uh, uh, you know to uh, to pay for the, for the lawyers that that are, are called for. There is one instance. There are probably many instances that one can look at in this country and ask whether something similar is happening here. One that involves not an author, though he's done a number of books, but not a book on this subject. Uh, uh, but this fellow is also a talk show host. I speak of the man called Savage. Michael Savage. Michael yeah. Savage. Uh, who has a syndicated talk show, doesn't appear on this station. He's rather uh, 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 overexpressive with his, uh, his rages and his contempts, but he's an intelligent and bright guy who's fun to listen to at times. I'm not supposed to say all of this about something that appears on another radio station <laughs> in Chicago, but he's syndicated around the country. And uh, who brought action against Care, him? Care, an, an organization called Care. Uh, which, is, the, which is, I forget what the Committee on American are. Islamic Relations. So, yeah, so, and, uh, you know, it's, it, the, the real issue here, Milt, is, um, is it against the law to offend somebody? And if it is, then we might as well toss out the First Amendment. The fact that something uh, is found to be offensive by uh, Muslims uh, is really, should, in a free society, should have no bearing. I mean, uh, the, you know, I might be offended by... Uh, by many of their practices, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to sue them or I should be allowed to sue them. Uh, I mean, it's part and parcel of the free exchange of ideas, of opinions, of debate in a free society that there's plenty of offense to go around. And, uh, I, I, you know, what is happening now is that uh, these people, mm -hmm. uh, really, in order to, to further the cause of jihad, and the end of which is to establish Sharia law and reestablish a worldwide caliphate. There's no, there make no bones about that. Uh, in and they order, got the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, on their I mean, side. yeah. When the when the Archbishop of Canterbury says that we need to have a constructive accommodation with certain elements of Sharia law, I mean, th to me that sounds like capitulation. Well, um, we take free speech, the right to free speech, for granted, but. Um, it's surprising how often free speech mm -hmm. comes under attack. In the universities, we saw speech codes. The very point that I was about to come to, uh, though we've got to pause in just an instant for our commercials, uh, uh, I think about a longish commercials period uh, since we're catching up with some of the load. But uh, let me simply make the point. Um, I am one of the uh, board members of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Mm -hmm. And that organization, uh, which has done wonderful and very important work, not 
because of any of my efforts, but because of the efforts of the, found, the two founders and uh, uh, an excellent staff. They bring actions all the time against universities who are, su- in this country, who are suppressing or attempting to suppress free speech because somebody's feelings might be affected or might be hurt by uh, open expression of views that are essentially politically incorrect yes. in that they are critical of one or another minority group, one or another um, a religious group, or merely expressing sometimes strong religious commitments, which might in themselves be offensive to all the atheists and, uh, and agnostics who fill the faculties and uh, supposedly populate the student bodies. I think in that we have a precedent in American yeah, practice uh, for this very same kind of thought policing, which they're attempting uh, in Canada and, uh, for that matter, in the U.K. Um, let's go on with all of this and examine uh, how this is really a part of the continuing war against the West by uh, Islamic militants. And we'll talk about these in related matters when we continue after these words. And on News Talk 720 WGN Radio, we return to conversation with uh, the three leading people at the New Criterion magazine. Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher, James Bonero, managing editor, David Yezzi, executive editor. And I was making some obvious reference to the fact that we've had similar outrages that have gone on for quite a while on the American campus. You, Roger Kimball, opened up uh, interesting discourse on what's uh, been happening in American universities a good 10 or was it 12 years ago with a book of tremendous importance, uh, Tenured Radicals, in which you maintain that the the ones who were on the barricades in 69 wound up as deanlets, deans, and ultimately college presidents, college uh, 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 department chairmen, and in the main were pushing a kind of political correctness which was intrusive upon the free speech rights of ordinary faculty and of students. Yes, absolutely. And I, I should point out, perhaps your listeners might be interested to know that a new edition of Tenured Radicals will be coming out this fall with a, uh, you know, up, it's updated with a, a, a long new introduction bringing things up to date. And uh, Would you say the problem still persists? I would, I would, say, that it, I would say that it does still pers- persist and that, if anything, uh, it's um, more serious because it's more thoroughly institutionalized. So the problems that we saw in the um, late 80s and 90s, um, which which seemed so outrageous then, are now simply taken for granted. Even and, though many of the speech codes were dismissed by by judges when some actions reached the court level. Yes, and what we but what we see now is uh, you can't go to a campus these days without finding someplace uh, a little stone tablet announcing its commitment to diversity. But you scratch that a little bit and you find out that diversity means strict intellectual conformity on any contentious issue. So it's free speech for me, but not for mm-hmm. the. And the same is happening in the courts as jihad is played through by lawyers. Uh, Has that reached uh, the courts in this country? The suit uh, by CARE, uh, well, that that, uh, against uh, the talk show host, that is an instance of the same, is it not? Uh, well, I think it's certainly cognate uh, with the same same sort of family resemblance to that kind of that kind of issue. But I think it's very important to um, to put what's happening with radical Islam uh, in this in a larger context. It certainly shares many of the um, uh, operational uh, you know um, sort of equipment of uh, that that we saw with political correctness. And I think that that the 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 imperatives of political correctness and multiculturalism, the kind of relativism that fires multiculturalism, provides a good uh, breeding ground for it. 
but the the um, the ends of radical Islam are are very different, and uh, I, I think really quite quite disturbing. They're they're incompatible with the freedoms of, of Western society, in my view. Now you did that is the new criterion ran uh, a meeting. Was it in April of this year? April 10. Yeah. April 10 in New York, in which a number of uh, people gave papers and discussed these matters, and. Uh, or else gave responses to the main papers. Among the main papers were those by Roger Kimball himself, by Stanley Kurtz, Robert Spencer, Andrew McCarthy, uh, who's been on this program discussing these matters, Mark Stein, who's a frequent guest on this program whenever we can get him. And uh, when we return from an upcoming review of the evening's news, let's talk about what was said in some of those presentations, and in the further responses made by, among others, uh, the aforementioned Rachel Ehrenfeld, Ezra Levine, uh, Steve Emerson, Frank Gaffney, interesting roster, Robert Bork uh, was there as well. We'll talk about what ensued that day in full discussion of this threat to civil liberty in uh, the Western world, and this new phase in the continuing uh, waging of a jihad against the West, uh, and in favor of uh, somehow Islamicizing the institutions of the West. All of that as we continue right after the update on the news from Paula Cooper. And directly back to James Panero, David Yezzi, and Roger Kimball. Let's plunge into uh, this fine supplement, Free Speech in an Age of Jihad, which you've distributed to all who subscribe to the new criterion. Uh, is this, by the way, available as a separate if people want to get their hands on it? Uh, yes, you can You can buy this uh, uh, off the uh, the website of the new criterion. Um, uh, and, and that website address is? It's just uh, newcriterion.com. Now let's talk about some of these articles, uh, particularly starting with Robert Spencer. He's been writing a great deal about uh, Islamic aggressiveness uh, in cultural terms for some time. Um, well, R Robert's piece is really about the suppression of criticism of, of radical Islam, the, the, the ways, uh, some of the ways in which um, uh, uh, radical Islamists um, have devised to silence uh, dissent, silence uh, criticism what of, are of their religion. Let us count the ways. What are they? Well, the, pr the primary way, uh, you know, apart from blowing things up and intimidating people uh, uh, physically, is b b through the use of the courts, uh, through the use of um, uh, other institutions of democratic society to <laughs> subvert uh, free, the free exchange of ideas rather than to uh, nurture it. Um, I think what, you know, one of the things that uh, is most important when discussing this sort of issue is to have the courage to call things by their real names. And when, for example, you have the Home Secretary in, in, in England uh, telling us that uh, Islamic terrorism should be rebaptized anti-Islamic activity, well, that makes it very difficult to criticize. Or when you have the State Department of the United States telling us that jihad really means the inner struggle to improve yourself and so on, uh, well, then it, the, what are we talking about? That's obviously not what we're concerned with. And if you actually look at what um, the, the apologists for real jihad are talking about, they're quite mm. candid. The, the blind sheikh, uh, for example, who masterminded the first World Trade Center bombing, said, no, 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 I, uh, what I mean by jihad is jihad with, uh, with, with missiles, jihad with bullets. That's what we're talking about. He was quite candid about it, and we need to be equally candid in calling a spade a spade. 
Let me let me discuss briefly how this pamphlet came to be. We held a conference in April with Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So it was a joint conference, New Criterion and Foundation, day-long conference in New York at the Princeton Club. Um, we have then published the papers and some of the responses for each of the papers in the special pamphlet, which is available on our website. And uh, Internet users can also go to our website and listen to the entire conference by AudioCast for free by going to um, AudioCast on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to that really struck struck me in the responses um, to Robert Spencer's essay uh, was by Claudia Rosette, where she made the point that um, publishers are kind of making, and writers are kind of making a silent, they're kind of making silent calculations. And they're saying, if I write this piece, that could, I could be sued in another country. Am I going to be able to defend myself? Is it worth going to that length? What Where could about I be there sued? is what is commonly called the chilling effect. It's That's a chilling always effect. the consequence of, uh, of any aggressive attempt to pursue some people in court for having uh, violated uh, your image. And unfo- you chill all further criticism. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, I think publishers are making decisions that we don't even know about, saying this is just too hot, we're not going to publish it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened to Cambridge University Press. Well, it just happened to Random House. I mean, they, Random House, uh, just a, a few days ago, it was announced that they, a novel they were going to publish, uh, sounds like a perfectly dreadful novel, frankly, but nevertheless, they had signed it up. They paid the author, uh, I think, a pretty hefty advance. It was called The Jewel of Medina. And it was a, uh, uh, a kind of, uh, apparently, a kind of soft porn version of uh, Muhammad's early life and his um, uh, uh, liaisons with young girls. Um, now, whether it's a good book or not, you know, that, you know, Random House was going to publish it, but they got threats uh, and they, they um, capitulated and decided not to publish it because they said they were worried that. Uh, uh, you know, they they would be um, they would be attacked by these. Well, radicals. of course, what they must have in mind as well is the dreadful case of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. How many years ago was that? Now well, it was quite a few years ago, but it was ten or twelve years. It ago. was about a very, apparently it was those passages in the satanic verses that had to do with Muhammad's yeah. uh, relations with these young girls. And uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, while he was still with us. Yes. Uh, issued a fatwa saying, go kill that man. Any Muslim who kills him will be assured of his place in paradise. I frankly wonder whether, whether that book would, be, book would be published today. Do you think? The satanic verses? Yeah. Good question. Good question. I'm not sure. You guys should have had Salman Rushdie, who I think is now living in New York, uh, in your conference. Uh, well, there were a lot of people to, to, to have at the conference, and we, uh, as it was, we were a little oversubscribed. But we certainly, it was a, it was a very good conference, I think, uh, yeah. kind of a, a stellar uh, panel of people. But it's, uh, you know, it's not only about libel tourism. It's really about free speech and what we can do to preserve it uh, in the face of these, you know, rather serious threats. You know, and, as we've been talking about this, I thought of a parallel case, um, in, also brought by a supposedly religious organization. Uh, in this country over the years, uh, and that's Scientology. Uh, Scientology for quite a while was very, very active suing people in the courts and otherwise threatening them uh, and uh, for any kind of critical commentary on Scientology. And in consequence, you got, you got a chilling effect so that editors were very loath to really send reporters down to headquarters in Florida or elsewhere to take a close look. That, I think that's lightened just a bit by now. But it still is uh, rather an inhibited area of discourse. Mill, just to uh, 
refer back to a, a, a question you had earlier, which was, you know, what, how is this playing out um, here in our courts um, and uh, and and elsewhere? Uh, and one of the things that Stanley Kurtz talks about in in his essay in the in the pamphlet on on free speech is um, the recent decision by the New York State Legislature um, to pass the Libel Terrorism Protection Act, which is uh, also known as Rachel's Law, um, taking the name from Rachel uh, Ehrenfeld. And, you know, the hope is that this uh, state decision will provide a model for more broad-reaching federal law. What does Rachel's Law specify? Well, Rachel's Law, the, the Libel Terrorism Protection Act, uh, is uh, the purpose of it is to protect American authors, um, uh, and this is now I'm just quoting Stanley Kurtz, uh, uh, protecting American authors, news organizations, and publishers from being terrorized by the threat of foreign defamation lawsuits. And interestingly, I mean, we've been talking a lot about British libel law and the disparities between that and American libel law. Uh, in which really the, the burden of, of proof is, is almost swapped. Um, today, uh, in uh, I believe it was in today's uh, Guardian newspaper, I can read the headline here, uh, British libel laws violate human rights, says UN. Human Rights Committee says UK laws block matters of public interest and encourage libel tourism. Uh, so, uh, you know, to kind of answer your question, I think that the that it is, you know, people are, are beginning to take take notice of this. And, you know, this conference that the New Criterion um, sponsored uh, back in April, I think, was out in front on this, but it's people are starting to catch on that this is a serious international issue. We've got a serious obligation to pause for an update. Oh, that comes later, the update on the news. Right now we pause for some commercials. We still do all we can to shore up capitalism and keep it going Excellent. in this uh, all-too-socialist world. <laughs> but when we return, I'd like to uh, go somewhat more broadly into the question of whether indeed there is a continuing clash of cultures, whether indeed Islam in general is a threat or if to the West, or if not, what portion of Islam is, what motivates them, and what is the nature of the continuing struggle, and what ought we including perhaps the next government of the United States, to be doing about it. We return to conversation with uh, the three leading people at the New Criterion magazine, Roger Kimball, James Panero, and David Yezzi, after these words. And we are back on the air, uh, and this is Extension 720. My guests are Roger Kimball, James Panero, David Yezzi, all of the New Criterion magazine. Um, you've had a long concern with the Islamic presence in the Western world and whether it is or is not a threat. And indeed, I made mention earlier of the article by Mark Stein, which ultimately generated his book, America Alone, the point, and which you published as an article. And uh, the point of his book is not merely that there's a large Islamic presence, but that there's a very low birth rate of native Europeans and a much higher birth rate for the um, Muslims who are crowding into Western Europe, and in consequence, you, you may demographically predict that uh, much of Western Europe may be Muslim majority in 50 years or so. That's one way uh, to alter a culture, to just move in and, and be there as others kind of fade away. But are there, we know there are Islamist, uh, uh, Islamist forces who threaten us. We know that uh, there is active 
combat against us. Uh, 9-11 in New York certainly symbolizes that, more than symbolizes, represents that, as do many other incidents, and as does the presence of al-Qaeda in the continuing Iraq and Afghanistan struggles. But are we to, from that to conclude, as some do, as perhaps Sam Huntington did or predicted rather a while ago in his book on the clash of civilizations, that we have here truly a clash of civilizations and one will rise and the other will fall? Or is that an exaggeration? Well, you know, it's fair. You're talking about uh, Mark Stein's uh, book, and I'll, I'll just I'll quote from from the uh, the article in this uh, pamphlet on, pamphlet on free speech that we've been talking about. When Mark says that uh, you know his supposedly Islamophobic book isn't really about Islam, uh, it's about the United States, and uh, he makes a very good point that that you know one of the great dangers. Uh, is really uh, internal, and he he quotes I think as as Roger uh, has um, uh, uh, to you know to uh, to make the point that uh, as Ar- Arnold Toynbee said, civilizations die from suicide, uh, not murder. Um, and as Mark says, you know one of the manifestations of this kind of suicidal urge is uh, as he says the willingness of government ministers, judges, police agencies, social workers, and other officers of the state to make common cause with an ideology explicitly committed to overturning the liberal utopia that they claim to be working for. Um, and uh, so when you're talking about threat, certainly there's there's an external uh, threat, and we've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the very brutal, uh, horrible uh, nature of that um, at close quarters, but, um, but the more general threat, and, and potentially... Um, as dangerous is is the internal threat that I think that that Mark talks about in his article. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think instead of a clash of civilizations, it could be a collapse of a civilization, our civilization. And Mark Stein talks about cultural confidence. I think we can defeat radical Islam if we have the confidence to do it and the confidence in ourselves. I mean, it's ironic and, and very troubling that it's our institutions that are being used against us. <laughs> In in, uh, in 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 this uh, libel tourism, I mean, uh, it's a human rights commission that's going after Mark Stein. I mean, just think about those in, words in Canada. In Canada, just think about that. A human rights commission, and they're going after the right of free speech. Something like the human rights commission of the UN was chaired for a year or so by Libya, as I remember. Right. Well, human rights commission is almost as uh, funny as the People's Republic of X. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it it uh, the, you know it bears as much re- relation to human rights as um, uh, it, it, you know the, the People's Republic bears to to democracy. Uh, you know, I think you know David and, and James are are uh, absolutely right that um, you know the, the the real issue is whether we have faith in uh, the power, the validity um, uh, of our own institutions, of our own uh, way of life? Um, Do we still believe that we are uh, on the right side? Now, one way to measure that, or one way to get closer to a a judgment on that question, is to look at the public culture uh, of a particular nation or a total civilization, to look for that matter at the arts and what's being done with the arts. I mention this, of course, because that's one of the main assignments that you take upon yourselves at the new criterion. Uh, when, what do you see when you look at American um, media culture and, for that matter, American supposed, supposedly high culture? 
Well, I mean, this is uh, this is the new criterion. This has been the new criterion's um, kind of bread and butter since uh, its inception. I guess not 26 years ago. Now we're mm-hmm. beginning our beginning our 27th uh, season in September. Um, and uh, you know, each month we uh, we review. Uh, we have a media column. Uh, uh, James uh, Bowman um, looks very carefully at the way that the uh, the media. Um, uh, you know, conveys uh, information and the, uh, the 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 biases that uh, that one often uh, encounters there. Um, but uh, you know, from the beginning, the new criterion um, uh, has uh, has been extremely, I think, that's not overstating it, um, uh, forthright uh, in its uh, criticisms of um, of uh, uh, of. Uh, institutions of culture, um, and uh, and I think it stands largely alone in in doing that. And we, and it's because of our our belief in the in the you know in in the the importance of culture that um, we feel the, that that this frankness is a, is is warranted and, and but, essential. Uh, I ask directly and simply: How fair is American high culture these days? Well, I think it's uh, in very bad shape. When Andy Warhol said that. Uh, Art is what you can get away with. Um, uh, he was just uh, uttering what is obviously the truth. I mean, if if uh, you know um, someone like uh, Damien Hirst can be proclaimed a genius, then something has gone very wrong. You tell everybody who Damien Hirst is. The, uh, you know, I mean, if you can if you take a uh, a shark and put it into a a, a tank of formaldehyde, that's and, what and, he did. and that's one of the things that he did. But the, the list is long, and it's not only the art world; it's also the world. It's all it's all of the institutions that were created to uh, perpetuate and transmit the values of our culture have been hollowed out. They've become decadent. Uh, the, the universities, the art world, the world of the media. The, these, the, these Let me interrupt you. I must ask you, since I'm an old university man, how have the universities become, in your term, decadent? Well, uh, that's really the subject of my book, uh, Tenured Radicals. They become decadent by giving up on the task of, as Matthew Arnold put it, to uh, uh, you know acquaint uh, students with the best that has been thought and said in the world. Instead, uh, they've really become institutions, uh, you know, that are in many ways anti-Western, anti-they're they're they are engaged in the process not of civilizing uh, <laughs> students but of de-civilizing. They're engaged in the and here you see. Um, you know what? What we thought at the new criterion about we we've been critical of political correctness of multiculturalism for years, and it was clear that these 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 phenomena were very bad for those institutions, the art world, the world of the university, and so on. But I think we even we did not understand just exactly how corrosive the ideology of multiculturalism was until we see it in action on the streets in the guise of uh, radical Islam, when it becomes a threat not only to a graduate seminar, but indeed to our whole way of life. But, but let me speak to, to fine art for a moment, and something actually going on here in Chicago at the Art Institute. There's a, a large wing going up, um, designed by Renzo Piano, mm-hmm. and I went to a press conference about it in New York. And I was, al- it looks like a fine building, but I was alarmed to see that there will be rooms dedicated to Gerhard Richter and Bruce Nauman. Now, these are two artists who represent, in my opinion, the worst, most pessimistic type of contemporary art that comes straight out of Mar- uh, Marcel Duchamp. Uh, Gerhard Richter makes portraits of the Bader-Meinhof Group, which is a terrorist organization in Germany. And Bruce Nauman um, uh, spits water out of his mouth and calls it a fountain, and that's high art for him. It's and perf- it's, that's in the, r- the realm of performance art, is it? Yes, it's a kind of performance art, and what's unfortunate is that this is now, this is now the lingua franca of the art world. 
this is very valuable artwork. It's what every art museum wants, and so the, the Art Institute wants it, and it's, it's going, and it's not criticized. Yeah, so just to pick up on, on James's point there, um, uh, in a pretty recent issue, we had a, an interview um, that uh, uh, Hilton Kramer, our founding editor, and David conducted with Philippe de Montebello, the outgoing director mm -hmm. of the Metropolitan Museum. And, um, you know, Philippe is going to be awfully hard to uh, replace. Uh, one of the things that has been so distinctive about his tenure, his long tenure at the Met, is that he uh, has consistently held the line against uh, the trendy, uh, the meretricious, all of this this huge wave of garbage that uh, cascaded over the art now, world. Now, would, would you say that the Islamists who disdain the West have some truth behind them or have some legitimate basis for saying that the public culture of the West in many ways is um, ungodly, is disturbing, is anti-humane? Uh, well, I'm not sure I would go quite that far. That was uh, that was the thesis of Dinesh D'Souza's book. Um, I think there are plenty of things. Yes, that he said that they, yeah, yeah. they're partly right. Right. Uh, I think that they're completely wrong. Um, that's not to say that there aren't things to criticize about the West, but they should be criticized from the point of view uh, of of the West. And in, indeed, um, uh, you know, the 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 real problem here is that we uh, seem to have lost confidence in you know, what is strong, what is good, what is vital about, about the West. And uh, we've become you know, very vulnerable to, to these, uh, to these uh, corrosive forces. One of the things about Western popular culture most immediately condemned by Islamic spokespersons is the um, hypersexualism uh, and the animalistic sexualism which is to be found in our, certainly in our films, on television, uh, in our popular music, uh, of certain kinds of popular music, uh, not the old romantic ballads, but mm. what you get in hip-hop these days. Right. Well, and they say that's an that's yeah, well, that's, they, cultural they, they, yeah, they, And they may be right, but I mean, is it, is, I don't know if it's any more degenerate than uh, uh, keeping more than half of the population in a state of essentially shadow slavery, which, mm -hmm. is, what the, which is what Islam does. Most often, I think it's just a, uh, just a symptom of bad art. Um, there was, I just read an article um, uh, last week about... Um, uh, neurological processes and that art actually can elicit emotions um, similar to the emotions that one really has. And I think what a lot of artists um, have, um, have come to understand is that they can produce shock and arousal and, um, you know, uh, 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 sexual stimulation in works of art um, uh, in, you know, without much effort at all. Uh, and these are fairly, uh, these are easy bu buttons to push. I have no doubt that I am the oldest man at this table and uh, with memories from an, another time. And I can testify that if 50 years ago uh, anyone had told little Milty Rosenberg that the world would be what it now is, uh, I simply would have found that ludicrous and ridiculous and totally unbelievable. Therefore, one wonders from this vantage point, what will we be and where will we be 50 years from now? Uh, what's happening in the world and what's happening to the culture that we presently inhabit? I think I want to persist with that very question. When we return from an update on the evening's news, and for that, to the newsroom and, uh, and Paula Cooper. And we return to James Pinero, David Jesse, and Roger Kimball, all of the new Criterion magazine. Um, well, the question I'm really putting is, uh, does our civilization have a good purchase on the future? Or is it, in fact, whether by virtue of assault from the outside or by virtue of collapse on the inside, 
does it uh, have a short continuing lease on life? Uh, David Jesse. Well, you know, you were talking about um, uh, the arts and, and culture, and certainly that's uh, uh, that's the the main focus of the, of the new criterion. And I think, um, you know, um, uh, in terms of uh, in, f- in terms of fine art literature, there are definitely high points. Um, um, you know, I think there there always are. Sometimes they're harder to uh, to find um, in in literature, in in poetry, and specifically uh, specifically, we've had some good news uh, recently. Uh, the Library of Congress has just appointed uh, the poet Kay Ryan. Um, and uh, she's an extremely uh, a gifted uh, poet, um, not, I think, um, you know, uh, part of the poetry establishment, not, uh, um, you know, affiliated with uh, a prestigious uh, chair or, or uh, university department, uh, just well, a, a very long-time nice, but, writer. Um, but, you know, uh, in my mind is something else, something we were discussing only last night, as a matter of fact, uh, some 30 to 40 percent of all American kids are now born out of wedlock. Uh, and uh, that tells you something about the disorder in the maintenance of family in this country. And without family, it seems to me, without families that work well and work strongly and socialize kids properly, uh, a, the center does not hold. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that, Milt. But then you have to have to ask yourself, um, how are these trends uh Progressing, and I think that there's there's been uh, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that um, the out of wedlock births are going down, at least in in, in uh, some portions of, of the population. And uh, you know, uh, really, I think that that um, David was right when he when he when he uh, he's onto something when he mentions that Kay Ryan is not part of the poetry establishment. I think that could be said sort of across the board that it's it's the major institutions that we have um, entrusted with with uh, perpetuating our culture that have been most conspicuous about letting us down. And that often the the uh, the saving remnant, to use uh, Matthew Arnold's phrase, w- w- they're, they're to be found in um, uh, sort of out-of-the-way places, mm-hmm. uh, not only in, in the art world or in the world of literature, uh, but also um, uh, on some, some of these moral terms. For example, the, the, the homeschooling movement, I think, mm-hmm. is a uh, uh, is a kind of rebellion against what has happened uh, in in the public schools. That the public schools have kind of violated their trust to uh, educate and socialize the next generation uh, of of children in a way that is um, uh, not only intellectually sound but also morally sound. And this movement has grown from mm-hmm. tiny, tiny uh, beginnings where it was just a kind of uh, uh, sort of coefficient of the evangelical movement to um, embracing more than two million people today. And that's, I think that that's a very promising sign. And there, there are many others that one could point to. Let me to. come back to the uh, external threat that we talked about, but now we have uh, shifted to what is right and what's wrong within our own national or our own Western cultural uh, civilizational life. But what about that Islamic threat? Is there reason to believe that it is under control and will diminish, or is it in fact gathering force? Well, I, I see it, uh, personally, I see it uh, gathering force. I think that the real, uh, the real hope in combating it will, will come from <clears throat> three things. One is uh, it needs to be uh, uh, contained when it when it spills over into violence. Uh, uh, two, our own culture needs to stand up for itself. We, what we need is not more tolerance of, of Islam, but less tolerance, I think. Uh, I, I, we have to realize that it's not the religion of peace, but it's really uh, a, a militant a militant religion bent upon, uh, you know, uh, the, the submission of the rest of the world. Do you want to say that to the million or so uh, 
Muslims living uh, near Detroit and say that to them about their basic religion rather than well, certain so, deviants in so, from the religion? In so, in so, well, that's the, that's the question. Insofar as their religion has uh, undergone a kind of enlightenment and that they can separate uh, uh, their political uh, uh, ambitions from their religious affiliations, that's terrific. The problem is that uh, Islam, in its very nature, does not make that discrimination. So what you need is uh, you need to have an, a, an Islam that has somehow undergone that sort of catharsis. And um, uh, certainly many individual Muslims have made that decision, and they've become perfectly assimilated, and they're, they're good citizens and so on. But the religion itself, I think, uh, has not yet. I, but uh, just to, the, to finish, uh, the, I think the third uh, mm -hmm. hopeful sign would be uh, when, when the women of Islam uh, finally decide that they no longer like being treated as chattel. And when that happens, uh, there will be a huge revolution within the, the religion, uh, and th that will, I think, you know, uh, change it in fundamental ways. When that will happen is, is anyone's guess. Um, it's very hard to get inside the Muslim mind. I'm not going to pretend to do it. I do see progress in Iraq, though, and I think Muslims there are making the decision, saying, do I want to go with Qaeda, a violent organization, or do I want to go to the United States? And I think we are making progress in convincing them that this is the better way to go. And there is also an entire moderate Muslim world. And you look at other countries that are not so much in the news, but actually are doing pretty good work. Qatar, um, the Emirates. I mean, that's, that's progress right there. And, and we have now more roots in those countries. We've talked of many things. And it's time for me to invite telephone calls from our listeners. And for that matter, email. Uh, the phone number, as ever, 591-7200, 591-7200. And for email, extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Uh, so, uh, both modalities of communication are open and available to you at this instant. But there aren't too many instants left. We'll only have about 15 minutes when we return from an impending group of commercials. Therefore, get your calls and or emails in quickly. 591-7200 or extension 720 at tribune dot com. And we return after these messages. And we return to News Talk 720 WGN. And this, of course, is Extension 720. And we return to our guests of the evening, the editor-in-chief, the editor and publisher of the New Criterion magazine, Roger Kimball, and the managing editor, James Panero, and the executive editor, David Yezzi. It occurs to me, uh, James Panero, uh, we should really tell people who are more interested in are interested in finding out more about the magazine and looking at some old issues, perhaps, or some sample articles, uh, where and how do they find you on the Internet? Very easy. You go to www.newcriterion.com, and, in fact, we just relaunched our website. It's looking very handsome these Thank days. Thank you for saying that. Um, we have a lot of free content. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, audio casts, including the entire day's conference on libel tourism. Mm -hmm. One might mention also an excellent blog that the magazine runs, uh, Arma Virumque, and in translation, uh, that means... Arms in the man, it comes from the first line of the Aeneid. Exactly. By Virgil, uh, the Roman poet. Of arms in the man I sing, says he. Uh, let us go to the phones, 591-7200, and here is Aris in Chicago. Good evening. Yes, good evening, uh, Milt, and your distinguished guests. I would like to uh, ask something that has come up to my, in my mind uh, about the last year or so. Uh, regarding, uh, you know, teaching and academia, this is a calling. It's not a business or commerce. 
but I was thinking of applying a commercial uh, uh, relationship uh, issue here that uh, the buyer and the seller, for example, the students being the purchasers of an education and the professors being the providers of the education. In academia, I think a large number of professors, besides their salary, are also receiving uh, side funds for research and so forth, uh, usually related to their uh, field of expertise. Yes, and half and of I, that, and half of what you get from on a research grant usually goes directly back to the university to help maintain it. Oh, I see. I, I wasn't aware of that uh, to that extent. But the basic question I have is if, uh, like, uh, fair uh, standards of commercial practice, you know, truth and labeling and so forth. Would it be uh, a good idea to have mandatory disclosure uh-huh. by all professors <laughs> of all sources of funding uh, in, besides their uh, uh, salary? Well, Roger Kimball has been thinking for years about what's wrong with American universities and how it might be corrected. How does that idea strike you? Uh, I think that might not be such a bad idea, but I, I, I like uh, even more perhaps your, the I'd, I'd like to expand it and uh, see this truth in advertising pursued a little more vigorously. I mean, what is a college education really worth today? Uh, Charles Murray is just publishing a book on education and had an article in the Wall Street Journal just uh, a day or two ago uh, arguing that far too many people go to college, that, um, uh, in fact, we have stigmatized uh, other avenues of, um, uh, of, of, of making a livelihood to such an extent that um, many people who shouldn't go to college do, with the result that the college education itself is, is diluted beyond recognition, and uh, the, the uh, uh, you know, perfectly legitimate um, vocational sorts of education have been stigmatized. I think it would be quite interesting if uh, people really had a good sense of what they were getting for their now uh, upwards of $200,000 for that four years college vacation. Ed- college education does pay off and makes a difference. Uh, of the three of you visiting here, two of you have gone to colleges at which I have taught. Uh, Roger is a, an alumnus of Yale. Uh, and uh, James Panero is an alumnus of Dartmouth. You came out only a few years ago, didn't you? Well, more than a few years ago now. About I was, 10 years I, ago? About 10 years yeah. ago, yeah. Uh, we go back to the phones, 591-7200. Here's the next caller. Good evening. Hey, Milt. Yes, sir. Uh, I've just I've been listening to your show for about two years, and I think it's the smartest show on the air, as far as I know, even though I don't always agree with everything, but I still think it's a great show. My uh, comment is that uh, I've only been listening to about half of this episode, but I've heard a lot of criticism of non-Western religions and philosophies uh, as to um, how it affects the downfall of our society in the West. But I was just wondering if there was... I haven't heard any criticisms about our own religions and philosophies on this side of the world. And what criticisms that... do you think are uh, are required? Well... It's just that our main religions seem to be uh, not quite as strict and, uh, I guess, in, for lack of a better term, like wishy-washy in their, in their details and rules and structures, and I think that could have a large effect on the minds of the youth of our nation. And You mean our religions aren't religious enough? Is that what you're su- suggesting? Uh, not necessarily that. It's just that the way that they seem to be taught... Um, 
forgive me. Uh, they just seem to be aired in many ways, as and especially as far as the people that uh, practice them do practice them or don't practice them. Well, if I just uh, step in for just a very brief comment on that, I think you know what you're talking about is not so much the religions themselves as um, a kind of dereliction on the part of, uh, again, the established uh, institutions that um, are supposed to be overseeing these 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 religions, and that certainly, uh, you know, is the case. It's you know you kind of feel as though um, every religion is is more and more like the old quip about Unitarianism, that they believe in one God at most. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that, you know, if you look at uh, uh, what made Western civilization great, uh, certainly a very large ingredient um, is the, the, that vital moral and intellectual force of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, I mean, without that, Western civilization is inconceivable. And I, and I would also add, the, I think, the... Judeo-Christian religions in this country are actually quite robust when compared to the rest of the West. Yes, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Europe is a kind of atheist readout, uh, an athe- atheist socialist readout, but that certainly is not the case uh, in the United States, at least not yet. Our thanks to the caller, and we range quickly ahead to another five nine one seven two double zero. The number you are on the air. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. What I wanted to say is, uh, Milt Rosenberg, you were judging our society by the sexual movies and things of that kind. I don't think that's the proper criterion. Look at the amount of charity. That I was suggesting that many do judge us negatively on the basis of that sort of popular culture material. Okay, I wanted to just say that I think that the real way to judge a society is how much charity, how much good does the average person in that society do? And if you compare the amount of charity, for example, the United States gives with other nations, we're way ahead, how many good uh, organizations we have to help people, things of that kind. I, I, there are very few countries that can, can match the United States of America in, in that kind of a thing. You've got to go by the average person, the people out on the mm-hmm. plains, the small cities and the farms and so forth. You just can't go just by what you see in New York and Hollywood. And yes, I, well, that is a point well made. Let's get some response to it and uh, from David Yezzy to begin with. Uh, well, coming from New York, I, <laughs> it's possible that we're colored by our uh, geography in terms of our, our our point of view. But I think your I think your point is well taken. I mean, we were saying I think just on a on a break here that uh, that the signs are encouraging uh, in in large part, and um, you know, and, and it's true that. Uh, that a lot of our work at the new criterion is to uh, is to be vigilant in pointing out uh, the problems, but um, but I think we all um, you know want to uh, to be very careful to uh, to uh, point towards uh, the positive because it's certainly out there. Can I also add to that? Um, maybe it's a good time to say that the new criterion itself is a charity, or we are a nonprofit organization, and we survive through generous donations and here we are well we'll put it to the test then we'll see uh, just how generous <laughs> the american uh, uh, the general american is what is a what does a subscription to the new criterion cost uh 48 it's a lot less expensive than a, than a year at college 
Yes, it is indeed. Uh, I can't, uh, our thanks to the caller. I can't resist asking you. Uh, this is a side issue, but it amused me, and at the same time, it enthused me in a way. Uh, a decision you made a while ago, Roger, not as the editor of the New Criterion, but as the publisher of Encounter Books, uh, which is a very fine series uh, of important nonfiction books appearing. Uh, well, it, the Encounter's just passed its 10th anniversary, I think. We're, we're in the middle of our 10th anniversary. But you took year. on the publishing task only about. Uh, just a year and a half, yeah. two years ago, I guess. And you announced recently, a few months ago, that you would no longer be sending books to the New York Times for review. Why? Well, we'd found that the New York Times uh, had studiously avoided reviewing our books. Um, uh, it should be made very clear that just as the new criterion is kind of on the conservative side with regard to cultural issues, and even as it leans towards politics, surely Encounter Books is the same. Yes, it is. It's. Uh, I, I would like to. I actually think of it as liberal, but liberal in the old sense, in the sense that Edmund Burke was sure. liberal. We believe in advancement according to merit, colorblind justice, all these things that are now enrolled in the index of that's conservative known as, vices. That's known as classical liberal. Right. Um, but the New York Times uh, had studiously avoided reviewing encounter books, um, except on the rare occasions when they would, uh, uh, you know, pick some title to, uh, to 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 trash. Really, it was not. I don't mind criticism, but uh, but contemptuous dismissal is is another another thing altogether. So we decided that um, uh, we would just you know codify what was in fact a. Um, uh, a situation that already existed. And, and I'm not saying the Times can't review the books, it's just that they uh, henceforth will have to go out and buy them like any other member of of the public. But uh, frankly, um, uh, it was also in the back of my mind was, was the realization that the New York Times um, matters less and less, that it's... Uh, it's uh, the 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 um, intellectual authority that it once conveyed upon uh, culture has long long since been dissipated, and even in commercial terms, a re- review in the New York Times, uh, even a positive review, uh, matters far less now than it than it once did. And we just like to pursue um, the discussion uh, with people who are you know more interested in actually having a discussion rather than uh, perpetuating. Uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an ideological point of view that is essentially illiberal. The man who um, founded the new criterion on a second run, originally it was in a magazine run by T.S. Eliot, as I remember it, the criterion, uh, was himself once the art critic for the Times, and he lost faith in that newspaper, and for years wrote a column about what was wrong with the Times. Yes, that was uh, Hilton Kramer started, left the New York Times in 1982, to start the new Criterion, uh, and the the Elliot's magazine, the Criterion, was very much in his mind. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Elliot described uh, defined criticism as the elucidation of works of art, and the correction of taste, and that's always been uh, at the center of what we try to do at the new Criterion. Um, uh, and uh, you know, the 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 Times is you know, if you go back and compare what cultural coverage was like. Uh, in, when, when Hilton was 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 there in the in the 60s and 70s, it was a you know it's just like night and day. Gentlemen, we come to the end of the available time. I fear uh, our guests have been Roger Kimball and James Panero and David Yezzi, who are not the only people involved uh, with the new criterion. There are many other fine writers, some on regular assignment and others contributing frequently, um, and uh, the. Um, Quickly, once again, the magazine is available uh, through the Internet at a site simply uh, designated as New Criterion. Newcriterion.com. Dot com. 
The preceding was a presentation of 720 to go. And the people working therein. For over three decades, Milt Rosenberg has played live on Extension 720, weeknights at 9. News Talk 720, WGN. You can subscribe to Milt Rosenberg's monthly list of guests and topics by going to WGNRadio.com.